0: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us! Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Keith Phipps,
2: Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky.
1: On last week's show, we talked about Persona, Ingmar Bergman's radical 1966 drama about two women who bonded uncanny and disturbing ways while alone together in a seaside locale. This week, we're bringing in Edgar Wright's new film, Last Night in Soho, which pulls off a similar dynamic, but across a 55-year distance in time. Last Night in Soho stars Thomasin McKenzie as Ellie, a would-be fashion designer from rural Cornwall who's infatuated by the music and style of 60s London. She gets her chance to revive that style when she moves to London for fashion school, but she has trouble fitting in with her snootier classmates. One night, Ellie has a particularly vivid dream that transports her to the seductive world of the swinging 60s and introduces her to Sandy, an aspiring lounge singer played by Anya Taylor-Joy. Ellie has her hair colored blonde and starts designing a dress to match Sandy, but her fantasies take on a much darker quality when she returns to this dream world and discovers that Sandy has been forced down a very dark and violent path. Despite the many decades between them, past and present start to converge and have a major impact on Ellie's mortal and psychological well-being. We'll talk about Wright's elusive and disturbing thriller after the break. Baby,
3: you don't know what you say. What brings you down then? I'm studying, London College of Fashion. The room is on the top floor. It's perfect, I love it. If I
2: could live any place and any time I'd live here, in London, in the 60s.
1: My dreams.
3: There <laughs> was a girl, and you are Sandy. <laughs> I got this kind of gift see people, places, things others can't
2: This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams.
3: They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do
1: this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. (laughs) What did you see? Do you believe in ghosts? Okay, so I think we, we, we're noted Edgar Wright fans on this podcast. In fact, our, our one attempt so far at a commentary track was to the Edgar Wright uh, film Scott Pilgrim versus the World. So, what do we think of this, the latest film by Edgar Wright?
3: I like this film. I was I was drawn into it, and I uh, early on and. You know, I, I have a lot of interest in the same period that he's, you know, d- exploring and, and which seems to come from our own personal obsession with the 60s on, on, on Wright's part in some ways, or at least deep interest in. I think we're going to, you know, not, not to, you know, get into it preemptively. I know a lot of people have level complaints about the second half of this movie. I think there are some issues in the second half, but I do, I actually do like the second half of this film, but we can get into that a little bit more as other people weigh in.
2: I'm glad to hear you like it because I uh, haven't talked to anyone else who does, really? <laughs> uh, which has made me feel a, a little uh, bummed because I-, I-, I also like this film while also acknowledging that it's probably my, I don't know if I want to say it's my least favorite of rights films. Like I don't really want to do that kind of ranking, but it does feel a little off model I don't even want to say that because it feels like it's he's like pushing himself uh, with this film. And I respect that. And I think that he achieves it in a lot of ways. I think what I really respond to in general in Edgar Wright films is that they are very propulsive. They have a lot of forward motion, you know, like they are. I kind of alluded to this in the uh, in the last episode, like they are. Just very narrative driven films. Films like The World's End or Scott Pilgrim, like there's actual, like, kind of uh, checkpoints in, in the narrative, you know, like built into the narrative. It's a very kind of, like, like I said, forward moving. And this one feels a little more kind of meandering interior focused, you know, and that's the design of the film to a certain extent, you know, it's kind of moving back and forth in time, and it's in her head and also out of her head. And so it just feels a lot more um, unmoored, I think, than um, I'm used to, like, I feel like, with Edgar Wright films, like you kind of lock in for a ride. And this, like, did have elements of that, but it also felt like it was the ride got a little rocky, you know, along the way. So um, it, it wasn't like the smoothest Edgar Wright experience. That said, the first sequence when she goes into the sixties and sees Sandy for the first time, like took my breath away. It was like maybe one of my favorite uh, things I've seen on film in a, a really long time. So I think just like the goodwill of that sequence kind of carried me through a lot of the remainder of the film. And I do see and understand people's complaints with the the second half of the film and like the red herring of the Terrence Stamp character and, and that whole thing. Oh, spoiler alert. This is a spoiler podcast. (laughs) But but that character is a big old red herring. I get it. But again, I think like once I kind of got into the film's groove and was just really more riding the style vibe, that stuff didn't really bother me as much.
0: Yeah, I think the energy of this film's soundtrack is just so compelling and so... So much of a ride, you know. So it carries the emotions of the film so strongly. <laughs> I had I had just a series of songs stuck in my head for literally weeks after watching this movie. I feel like Wright is just one of our our best masters when it comes to putting an action sequence to music, like picking the right pop culture referential mm-hmm. music that's like recognizable and and instantly iconic to a sequence of action that it it both enlivens and energizes. And so much of that happens here. You know, Ellie's experience is is so tied to the music of the 60s and the the iconography of the 60s. I feel like I've got probably some of the same quibbles that everybody has with the the second half of the film, in part with some of the places that it it goes, but in part Just with some things that I feel like are relatively careless and shallow characterizations for uh, characters that, that should matter more, that should be thought through more in this movie. But just as far as the first half goes, that opening sequence where Ellie, wearing a a ball gown that she's constructed mm. for herself out of newspaper, uh, sings and dances alone in her home, kind of like putting on a little show for herself and for the camera, and imagining her life to come is it's so compelling. I interviewed Edgar Wright for the movie, and I, I spent half of it just talking about the the first dance sequence in the ballroom, where Matt Smith is, is dancing with Sandy, and it keeps switching back and forth with Ellie. And most of that is a, a single shot mm-hmm. done entirely with practical effects. There's, there's only one place at the very beginning with a digital swap between the Jeez. actresses where they just shot... Mm like Matt Smith dancing with each of them and match cut between them uh, with a little digital cheat. Apparently the rest of it is just all every time he passes one off screen, the other one just slips in smoothly. I just want to go back and revisit that scene over and over. There's so much deftness here and there's so much life and light and color and energy. I think that there are flaws with the second half, but I think maybe one of the reasons we notice the flaws at all in the second half is just that you know disintegration and degradation and and misery and murder and and blood and hate is so much less fun than the joy of the that first half you know <laughs> yeah. scott's making his uh where where's my beloved
1: violence oh my no i know the thing it's so regrettable because i'm agreeing with everything you say why <laughs> why <laughs> So upsetting. I'm so sorry that you have to agree with me, Scott. Oh, yes. The first half is so seductive and great. Um, Dang, Tasha. Um, Yeah. So I had that reaction. It was just, you know, it was funny when, um, you know, I saw the trailer to this film and I thought, like, this is just, this is going to be the movie of the year. This is just, what an incredible trailer. This looks so exciting. And it's, plus, it's, you know, kind of suggestive of, you know, certain film movements uh, that I really, uh, you know, (laughs) like quite a bit i was uh, in its Eggar torture porn huh yeah like torture <laughs> porn and and um <laughs> it, you know it, it just in the color of it and the style and i in the music and i was so excited about it and then, then kind of you know some of those you know middling reviews started sort of trickling in from the fall festivals and i was like how can this be so and then you know i sit down and i watch the movie and for the first hour it's like who are these idiots like this film is incredible <laughs> what what is wrong with them and then and then the, the second half i'm like oh okay i kind of i kind of get it i kind of see where this may have gone off the rails for folks including myself to a, a pretty decent degree but um but it is really quite exciting while it lasts and even when it isn't as good in the second half there are still some some elements of it to savor i mean i, I you know i do you know, you can be disappointed by the twists with regard to both the Terence Stamp and the Diana Rigg characters, but still think those are great performances by people who have, you know, been around for that long, and and, uh, and uh, you know, and, and appreciate you know the amount of attention that that uh, Wright pays them, the amount of um, substance that that is kind of given to those characters, even if. You know, there's a lot of things I think, you know, r- wrong with with film. A lot of missteps that are taken in that in that second half. But uh, but I, I was certainly won over by the first to a point where I I can't imagine throwing this film out uh, because of the, because there's because there are obviously a lot of wonderful things about it. That um, sequence that Tasha you know and yeah Wright kind of went over in great detail being foremost among them i mean how can you just not be seduced by it how can you not just be swept up in her excitement about it as well and get get that kind of second hand high from it so i you know i, I d- did like it and, and, and in a way you know i almost feel like my disappointment in the film sort of mirrored her her disappointment in the era of not being mm. everything that she hoped it would be uh, everything that she idealized to be even though even though normally when a film takes a, a turn toward the dark and murderous i'm i'm uh <laughs> all the more excited to, to see that happen it just it's just in this case it goes along with a lot of a little more dubious plotting and a little bit more you know just dubiousness in general
3: I'll admit at here in front of everyone that that I I think one of my flaws as a critic is that if something wins me over early I tend to be pretty forgiving mm. of of missteps later on. To, for me, the w- bad stretch of this movie is the 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 sort of stretch where where Eloise is is falling apart, investigating the murder, and kind of going mad. And I feel like it's it's repetitive and it's not particularly it's not that scary and it's not not necessarily a to me a very. Effective just uh, depiction of, of mental disintegration, and I hate the digital effects. Yes. I, oh ha- I hate the, the the ghosts. The ghosts in this movie are bad ghosts, bad yes. ghosts. Uh, <laughs> but I actually do really like. The, I, I actually, I, I maybe I'm corny, but I like the twists. Uh, not so much that the stamp one is a little eye rolly, but I, I, the 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 Diana Rig reveal, I, it, it does pave the way for some great Diana Rig acting, and and, and her inner swan song, and who could who could say say no to that? But I, I, I also feel like I the whole central idea of this film I found really resonant because you know you have these relationships with the past through pop culture and you have kind of a form a sense of like what an era is all about and like and then you go back there and, and and you know if you were to if you could travel back in time it like you know it would it would be pretty shitty then too you know it's it's there's shitty stuff going on no matter what era you're in and and perhaps in some ways even worse because you know this is there are you know to to be a woman in this era to, to not be a white person in this era this this was a, a trickier a trickier place uh, to be even than now
2: Going back to the opening sequence that Tasha was talking about, which I also enjoyed quite a bit. I'm a sucker for a newspaper dress, man. Um, (laughs) But I also found it interesting how the film sort of reveals what it's doing as far as its timeline, because correct me if I'm wrong, I did only see it once and I wasn't paying super close attention or tracking this uh, when I watched. But I feel like you don't know that it's the current day until she leaves her home and we see her on the... Train or bus, I don't remember which. Wearing uh, a pair of Beats wearing, headphones. Wearing uh, a, yeah, beats yeah, headphones, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like up until that point, it was like, oh, this is a period piece. You know, mm. she's she's in the sixties because like we only see her. In the context of you know listening to these records and you know getting a letter in the mail that she's been accepted—a very very thin letter—but yeah, they do things different in the, the yeah yeah um but maybe it's different when, in uh, in London uh, schools but yeah I just thought that was even stationery is expensive. <laughs> they send
1: you a thick letter of apology when they for saying no. It's very British. <laughs>
0: Um, but, but if you get no, you get a, a thousand uh, howlers through your window along with a bunch of owls. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, I just thought that that was a very uh, clever uh, unfolding, I guess, of what the uh, what the film is doing as far as its dual eras.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's very deliberate because there is something kind of uh, timeless about Ellie because she's she's so invested in the past. You know, she's so invested in past fashions and past music and and past fantasies. I actually laughed when I saw the the Beats headphones because it just seemed so. Out of character for her, uh, the version of her that we had established so far, but yeah, I didn't really have a, a clear association with what era she was meant to be in until that moment, <laughs> and then of course it's done through product placement. It's just <laughs> funny; I still find that funny.
1: <laughs> the film was actually fairly insightful about the experience of being a freshman in college, too. I thought, mm-hmm. I, I, I thought like that was a that's a fairly plausible roommate situation somebody uh, somebody i don't know you don't think so I, oh this is this i felt, felt
2: Jacosta. i felt jocasta was a little overblown as far as uh the nightmare or it, it just felt like a very sort of pat nightmare roommate
1: no she's like she's like she's, like she's like she is a meadow soprano and then and uh <laughs> and uh ellie, is the, ellie cr- is the roommate who completely loses her her crap over the <laughs> over the semester
3: yeah. I feel like, and obviously I think the film had to do this, but that relationship would take longer to get that gross, you know, she'd take yeah. a while to reveal herself as being that horrible roommate. Although maybe not things, yeah. things are different in London. I don't, I don't know. know.
0: I, I think there's an interesting mix pretty early on between her deciding that Ellie's kind of a fuddy duddy. who's going to hold her back and her being jealous. I, mm. I like, even if the like showing off her uh, connections and, and, Bragging in her thin skinned way was a little over the top. Where it's revealed that Ellie's mother committed suicide, and all the girls who are looking at her as a nerd kind of have their moment of, Oh, you're so brave. And Jocasta just immediately bristles and has to come up with, like, I don't remember, like a, an uncle who had something bad yeah. happen to him or, or something once. Like that that actually rang fairly fairly true to me. Like I'm kind of over cinematic depictions of associations between girls being just all about like vipery, uh competition mm-hmm. and and jealousy and and meanness and judgment. But that one little moment of uh wait wait no, I'm I'm losing them. I've got to come up with something myself which was immediately responded to with that same kind of oh, you're so brave.
2: Uh, you know, it felt artificial, but it also felt funny and it felt real to me. It felt heightened, but so much of this film is heightened that like, it's it's not really a ding against it, I guess, but I just, maybe I it, it just felt a little, it just felt a little much. I don't know. Um, I didn't respond well to the Jacosta of it all, but that, maybe that's just
0: me well, not an element her. of comedy <laughs> that
1: the film could have needed i mean that that was one element yeah. that, that is not really that is so That's present true. in Wright's films but not as present here as in others you know i mean it, it, it's there are some, yeah, and, some and, laps and th- in that early section that are that are not there obviously when things get a lot more serious in the second half
0: i think the problem though is is because things get so serious in the second half the kind of wingnut humor Starts feeling kind of awkwardly wedged in, you know, you've you've got a movie that is fundamentally about the sexist institutions that destroy women's lives. You know, there's there's rape and there's exploitation and there's I'm not sure uh, we want to get into the murder aspect of it yet, but like there's a lot of like horrible abuse going on in this movie And it rhymes kind of weirdly with the like the silly mean girls comedy. You know, there are elements of this movie that I feel like right means for us to take seriously thematically. And it doesn't necessarily go well with like the candy colored musical fantasy or the kind of goofy humor in certain places. It jumps around tonally, maybe a little much for what the movie is trying to do.
1: And I also think that there's something amiss about the film's instinct to be about something in a pretty conscious way i mean you know a lot of the films that wright is referencing you know particularly the i guess the giallo films he's referencing have a very you know exploitative perhaps but also instinctual quality to them there doesn't seem like there's a huge amount of thought or calculation about what it all means or implies and that's not the case here this this is a film that has some themes it needs to get into, and some messages it needs to send, and and um, and and it feels a bit incompatible to the style of film that he's trying to evoke. I think.
2: Yeah. And not to get too extra textual about it, but I, I did get that feeling too, Scott. And I, I'm tempted to kind of attribute it to saying earlier, um, you know, I think we're seeing Wright try to like push himself a bit into a new territory here. And one of like the biggest things against him as a director is, uh, and a, and a writer is he, doesn't do female protagonists (laughs) you know like the he's always uh his films have always centered on men and had women sort of as secondary uh characters or accessories Mm. you know um and that's been a a criticism of him and so you know i think when this film was announced it was notable that it was uh you know what it had a, a female protagonist and i you know, and I, we should note that the uh, he co-wrote the screenplay with Christy Wilson Carnes. So this isn't like Edgar Wright writes a, a female character, but I think there is maybe a little desire maybe on his part to show that he can do something with a, a female character that is more meaningful than he has been perceived as being able to do with female characters in the past.
0: I also just want to jump back and say, like, I I appreciate the ambition of trying to get a little more messaging into the the genre particularly when it comes to you know those are very exploitative movies like as you say mm-hmm. they're kind of reflexive in what they're they're trying to get across with the you know skin and and death so trying to take that and make it into a story specifically about the exploitation of women strikes me as a, a strong and, and smart instinct. I feel like where this falls down is just I, the in the in the second half, a lot of these characters feel very thinly characterized. That introduction of Ellie, as I say, is just so so intense and clear. You know exactly who she is. The introduction of Sandy, it seems so intense and clear, and just exactly who she is and what she wants. And then the story requires her to be forced into sex work, but it just doesn't feel like it It takes the time to establish how she made those choices, how she fell down that slippery slope. It doesn't give her much agency. You know, we don't really get to see her making decisions. We just get to see her doing unsupportable things that she's just very clearly not profiting from. The promise is, if you sleep with all of these unattractive rich men, you'll be successful, like you'll get what you want. But we never get any hint that she's getting any of what she wants. We never get any hint of how we went from A to to Z in this case. And in the same kind of way, Jocasta disappears and and isn't really a character anymore, except for uh, a small sort of gag at the end. Michael Ajao, who plays a man mm-hmm. who is in fashion school and is interested in Ellie, is exactly that kind of accessory uh, love interest character that people complain about as far as his female characters go. like The man has no personality, mm-hmm. no agency. He has no believability. He's a dishrag who appears whenever Ellie needs him and has just no ability to advocate for himself or even respond to some pretty awful things happening to him. He's just a plot convenience. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, my big problem with the second act is mostly just how thinly characterized some of these people are and like the potentially like beneficial ideas of kind of examining Jalo while doing Jalo kind of get lost in the execution.
2: Yeah, and regarding John, uh, the Michael Jou character, I don't know I don't think you said he is the only black character in th- this film. So if we're talking about someone who is in the role of a thinly drawn accessory, I think you have to take note of that as well. And I, I, I will say the the scene where after the Halloween party where they come back to Ellie's room and uh, are getting it on in and, and bed and Ellie has a, a freak out and starts screaming and Diana Riggs' character bursts in on them and it just it looks really bad. Mm-hmm. And it looks really bad uh, for John in that moment. And I was extremely anxious during that whole interaction. But then it just kind of, it's not really addressed, you know? And obviously, I'm coming at it from a, a American perspective where black men and white women having sex has a very fraught and upsetting history. And I don't know if that translates exactly to the UK, but it certainly was something that I brought into that scene and was very upset by and kind of dismayed that the film didn't really acknowledge or engage with.
0: Well, also specifically the the idea of a black man being accused of sexual assault of a white woman and the idea that the police are going to get involved, like you're seeing something literally destroy his entire life uh, for Mm -hmm. reasons that he not only is completely innocent of, but also just absolutely doesn't understand. She's responding to things that he can't see or hear. And as far as he knows. He went home with a, a consenting partner and then suddenly she just completely freaked out on him. And the idea that the next time he sees her, he apologizes to her and wants to yes. go out with her again is just it's <laughs> so beyond the pale. It's, it's not it would be beyond the pale, like even if there were, were no like racial or, or class uh, dynamics involved in here. But given the dynamics that are involved, it, it's just like it, this is not a character. This is a plot convenience.
1: I would actually be quite curious to hear from our UK listeners. There's so many of you, I'm sure right about their response to the racial dynamics of this, because it is in America, very charged. (laughs) It felt to me like a bit of colorblind casting that backfired horribly on, on Mm -hmm. on the film, uh, in my opinion. And I think that's kind of maybe true of the, of the other aspects of it, of, of right, trying to, understand women and sexual violence better to address some of the blind spots that people might have noted about his filmography but then those attempts to address it also being very flawed and him being not as assured in that as he is in subject matter that is more in character types that are more in his wheelhouse
0: I mean, a, a fair deal of this does fall to Christy Wilson-Kerrins, Cairns is, by the way, the screenwriter of Dunkirk, uh, which is a, a very written movie, a very mm-hmm. uh, constructed movie in a very interesting way.
2: Mm-hmm. A very masculine movie, a too. A very
0: masculine movie. And, and, you know, I've seen <laughs> interviews with her talking about Last Night in Soho, and I, I definitely think that a lot of this does come from her. Edgar Wright talks about how, like, this was all... A kind of big idea with a a soundtrack, a a playlist that he'd had uh, built up for, for quite a long time that was kind of a lesson in anti-nostalgia. But it sounds like she came in and gave it a lot of its structure and a lot of its characterization. So I, I really don't want to, We, you know, we have no idea how they worked together exactly. I definitely don't want to put too much mm-hmm. of this in the lap of like Edgar Wright has a problem writing women or Edgar Wright doesn't understand sexual assault. Like anything that we're saying in that uh, vein, I think both you know, deprives his writing partner of her agency and uh, involvement, and is like ma- blaming him for things we have no idea whether he did.
1: And her right, and at her uh, fall uh, <laughs> faults for for screwing screwing up this part of the movie. <laughs> but you know, I, one thing I would say, I really anti nostalgia is a very important theme that I did not. That I guess hasn't been mentioned, but I think is such an important part of the movie and, and, and what does kind of give it distinction, at least that gesture of just like of really idealizing the past to a, to a point where you where you f- just forget what that that past has teeth to it, you know and that a lot of the things that you might imagine are wonderful about that uh, a certain era you know are in fact you know colored by a lot of things that are very, very bad. You know, I I always I think about like that Stephen King book eleven twenty two sixty three and and how much you know and just generally how much he loves to indulge in certain periods of American life. It takes him kind of an effort every once in a while to to remember. Okay, then there was, you know, there were segregated spaces. You know, you kind of have to point that stuff out because because you can get lost in the things that you really love about the past because you didn't live there. You didn't live there during that period. And you're, you are of a certain color, you know, and you are male. Um, maybe, you, you, forget. So I, I do, I do like the fact that the film is so in love with the swing sixty, so in love with the music, so in love with the film films of that era, but does have that ability to kind of step back and say, well, it wasn't really <laughs> all that great that there was, there were these other aspects to it, uh, that were hidden or that we forget.
0: And that's also just a really big theme for Edgar, right? I mean, the, the villains in Hot Fuzz are essentially a bunch of people who have an idealized version of the past that they're trying to maintain at the cost of people's lives, at the cost of people's freedom and humanity. The world's end is, is fundamentally about somebody who is stuck in a past that nobody else remembers fondly in the way that, that he does. So this is. It's a really interesting idea uh, for Wright, given his his own obsession with the past his he you know he gave the uh, cast and crew on this movie a list of fifty movies uh, to potentially go watch to understand where he was coming from on this. you know he is a musical historian, he's a film historian he's in love with the past himself, but he keeps making these movies that kind of consciously say, like, if you're living in the past, you're living wrong. If you're pretending that the past was better than it was, you can't move forward. I, I just think he's very aware of this tendency that he has, and he keeps you know, consciously writing against it.
3: So I'm mentioned. I actually enjoy, and this is this is heavy spoiler, heavy spoiler territory here. So, uh, but I uh, I mentioned that I actually do like the final twist of this movie, which which is to me, it's like kind of a neat little. I think I likened it in my review for the reveal to like a Alfred Hitchcock presents twist or something like that, like sort of a a neat little short story twist where you find out what's you know what's been going on. I think other people are not quite as on board with that uh, at all. I think I, I I like it as a clever ending. I wonder, though, how we want to, you know, how it makes us think of Sandy, though, whether or not we see the enough continuity between the character of Sandy that we see on screen and in the, in the 60s and then the character played by Diana Rigg uh, later on.
2: I mean, I think it's one of those reveals that kind of asks you to go back and change your reading of everything mm-hmm. that you already saw and and already processed a certain way and i think to one viewer that's clever and to another viewer that's a cheat and cheap you know i think the scene where we actually see sandy in the past quote unquote get stabbed by the matt smith character and see all the blood i think that is a tough one to just reconcile stylistically formally or whatever with this twist because it kind of just asks you to re-envision the physics of that Mm -hmm. whole of that whole moment or or, Mm. or like or it seems like you've been lied to so i don't know i kind of want to I, i would want to go back and actually watch that scene and watch how it's replayed with the twist and like see if it works better than I think it did. But I suspect that is maybe kind of the crux of a lot of people not buying that twist is how we see that moment happen in flashback versus how it happens in the reveal
0: you know, it's almost like sometimes movies have big disjuncts in them that show you kind of one version of a story and then shift to show you kind of a different perspective or a different part of a story. And maybe that's part of what the filmmaker is deliberately doing. Can
2: Can anybody think of any other films like that? And maybe they all don't. cinema is just a lie anyway. Maybe we shouldn't trust anything. Sorry, see I don't it. really know.
1: I don't know. I don't know what, what t- Tasha you're referring to, but it's possible that we may bump into this Ooh! when we come back after the break to talk about the connections between <laughs> Persona and Last Night in Soho. Least I can do is drive you home.
3: Ah, uh, what's the most? Well. Do you know Goose Street? Very well. I'm on Goose Place, number eight.
1: Madame?
2: light shining on you it's the closest most people ever get to being on stage you know to their dreams not me not you i could see you want it more than anything well this is just a taste of
1: things to come sandy now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common and uh you know one thing they have in common are two different people who kind of <laughs> merge uh <Genedive>. yeah <laughs> yeah
2: the connection as you have it written in our script is doppelgangland, land <laughs> uh which i i will not that is a, a scottism that i will not take credit for but yeah i mean we are talking about two films that have two characters that are presented as doppelgangers to a certain extent they're they're doubles in last night in Soho, it's a little more that Ellie is willingly taking on the identity of uh, Sandy after seeing her in in the first vision, whereas in Persona, we're kind of presented uh, the, the women are a little more of a paired conceit right from the beginning. I think like we're told that they look alike kind of um, right from the jump. We already talked in the first half about how maybe they don't actually look that much alike. But I mean, you know, without parsing the nuances of like how much these characters slash actresses look like each other, like both films were specifically cast with two women who are reflections of each other visually to a certain extent. And mirrors are obviously a, a very big motif in both films as well. So in both cases the doubling of these two women is ultimately less about the visual of how they look when they share a frame, although both uh, directors very much like to find interesting ways for them to share a frame. But it's it's more about the thematic connection and the uh, kind of uh, shifting identities between these two maybe halves of the same persona, if you will.
1: One thing that I was thinking about when you're talking about mirrors is that I think that one difference here is that with one night in Soho, it's kind of a one way mirror, really. It's not, it's not like, Mm -hmm. it's not like uh, the two are interacting. It is really just Ellie who is experiencing, you know, Sandy's world and not the other way around. Um, uh, Whereas in persona, there is an, there is an interaction and then a convergence and kind of a, a mixing of identities to some degree. Um, So it's a little more active and a little bit more, uh, two way, even though, even though the, even though the women do, you know, contrast in pretty important ways too. So I I guess that would be kind of a, you know, a a difference between them, but, but But, I I
2: mean, we do see, like, like I said, we do see Ellie kind of like taking on the identity of Sandy that, and that feels sort of reminiscent of what we were talking about in the first half about Elizabeth's maybe sort of, um, siphoning uh, alma's you know identity to a certain extent as well
1: taking her stories taking everything in that that's being shared shared with her in a very well vampiric way right
2: yeah yeah but i mean
0: uh alma steals from elizabeth too she literally steals her husband
3: there's that is it literally though is it or is that a dream sequence
0: i mean (laughs) the way that i most want to read that is that there's an outside perspective on the two of them for maybe only the second time in the movie. And that outside perspective says that Elizabeth doesn't actually exist, hmm. that Alma is the real one there and Elizabeth is kind of a persona, if you will, a silent witness to what's going on between Alma and her husband, who has feelings and thoughts about their relationship that she can't express. That's how I read read that sequence personally, as opposed to it, it being a dream. Does that fit with all of the other pieces? Not necessarily. No, but I, I've commented on that already. Uh, my my point is mostly just uh, like Alma is is certainly as guilty uh, of stealing things from Elizabeth in the the back and forth between them. But yeah, I, I do think it's very significant that Ellie has these visions. And so immediately throws herself into them. I mean, I mean, as much as I love the the back and forth dance sequence and, and the opening number, one of my favorite things in the movie is just her enthusiastically putting on her record and throwing herself into bed that second night because she can't wait to get back to her like weird magical body swap dream things that she's having. Like she's excited. They're exciting. They're simpler and more compelling than the life that she's actually living. And she she just really wants to be back in that fantasy again. So, you know, no wonder she dyes her hair and buys clothing to look more like Sandy and, and just tries to live out this fantasy that she's having.
2: Yeah, I do find it interesting to think about Ellie's relationship to Sandy in the context that we were talking about Elizabeth and Alma in terms of like, who is like taking from who and who is, you know, sort of like the vampire, (laughs) I guess if we, if we want to continue with that theme, because Ellie is, Ellie is obviously telegraphed as so much more, the innocent, the, the naive, you know, Uh, she's, Dancing around and throwing herself into bed, and she's just like, you know, well, they're both wide-eyed uh, characters uh, physically, but you know, she is just telegraphs as a much more sweet and innocent presence. But you know, she is kind of drawing her identity as an artist, as a as a fashion student, from Sandy, and I think. I come back to the, I believe it's the very last shot uh, of of the movie after Ellie's successful fashion show, and uh, we have another another mirror moment of her seeing Sandy and doing a little like nose boop, you know, <laughs> and it and it just it's a very assured and vaguely sinister. I felt it was vaguely sinister in uh, and, and that moment. It felt a little bit like Ellie had taken on some something a little. Dark, you know, uh, in in her connection to to Sandy, did anyone else feel that?
1: Yeah, she kind of stole, she'd sort of stolen Sandy's essence, and meanwhile, Sandy yeah. had had uh, allowed herself to be set on fire. She's she's gone now, so so yeah. whatever presence she had in the world is now you know entirely owned, or at least whatever part of her you know Ellie wants to own is 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 now hers to, hers to take. And I, I kind of appreciated that little dark note. Incidentally, because I felt like the denouement was maybe the low point of the whole movie for me of last night in Soho. And so I kind of liked that it, it, that what seemed like kind of a weird happy ending ended up having just a little bit of an edge to it at the end. It kind of helped salvage that scene a little bit for me.
0: You know, much more than uh, anything that happens in persona being possibly a fantasy or possibly a dream, i I have a much harder time accepting somebody deciding to commit suicide by sitting down in a room that's on fire, like and <laughs> and then just like placidly allowing themselves to be consumed by fire. It just absolutely does not work for me. You know, here is a story that has ghosts and time travel in it, and the thing that is implausible for me is just somebody's response <laughs> to fire. It, but
3: it, it is a connection uh, to persona, though. You yeah, get burning People burning alive in each of them. It is yeah. true,
0: but I mean, if you've if you've ever watched <laughs> a, a video of somebody setting themselves on fire for a protest, I, it does not. Uh, it's not often peaceful. Uh, it's a, a horrible, horrible thing. Um I, I was gonna bring that in, but I thought it was gonna be too tactless. So I'm glad somebody else did it. Oh no,
3: no, that's me. Uh, leave that to me.
0: <laughs> I will say that I I mean, I just I think in in terms of that whole like who's taking from who thing, I think it's very significant that both Ellie and Alma are hungry, that there's something huge missing in their life that they want. And Alma articulates it. You know, she, she comes out and says to Elizabeth, like, nobody ever listens to me. I I didn't realize how much I wanted somebody to listen to me. I never realized how wonderful it is to talk. Like she, she, as I said before, kind of projects this image of, of what she needs on Elizabeth and, and turns her into that. But Ellie does the same thing with Sandy. She sees this image that's the image Sandy is trying to project. And she accepts it as the reality and hungers for it and, and wants it and takes it on herself. She she gives into the fantasy. In this case, it, it is something that Sandy's aware of and, and trying to do herself. But in both cases, you, just, you have a woman who's missing something in their life and seems to see it in this other woman and uh, takes it for themselves, potentially with disastrous uh, results.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing i would add is i yeah I, I think you i think you really just probably gotten it here which is that which is that that it does feel a little bit like alma and ellie are on a similar trajectory with regard to their relationship to the to the other woman and and how, how it also shifts you know at a certain point too i mean really at that halfway point i mean there's there's this kind of almost very sharp line of demarcation where where this fantasy of, of what that other person means it, it does does start to fall fall apart and you end up you end up with it in a much 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 darker place very very quickly but there's a lot here too i think tasha about the relationships between women which of course is obviously very important to both films
0: Yeah, I mean, I did say earlier that the whole business between Ellie and Jacasta just kind of takes me to a place of "uh, here we are again." Uh, Women can't have friendships; they can only have like catty enmities, where they they semi get along, but they're in competition with with each other. Which is just like one of the big lies of cinema, you know? It's more exciting than close supportive friendships, and. It heads back into a, a long, long era of films being mostly written and directed and produced by men. So uh, there's not a lot of believable uh, female friendship in earlier movies. But here we have just a very clear model of not a, a catty mean girls kind of relationship and not a an immature schoolgirl cutting each other down relationship in persona, but like adult women who are are aware of the holes in their lives and are using each other uh, trying to to fill this in. I, because Elizabeth is just as hungry and, and just as needy as Alma is, and to some extent is using her in the same sort of way that, that Alma appears to be using her. With Sandy and Ellie, that relationship, I think, is less schoolgirl competition and more a kind of a deep understanding of each other. It just takes them a while to get there. And then Ellie has to pull back from it because it becomes a survival tactic. But I, yeah, I think, I think both of these movies just have very interesting and thoughtful spins on kind of the usual insecurity, like jealousy, cattiness-based uh, relationships that women so often have, especially young women uh, in
2: film. Well, and Ellie, as the film progresses, takes on a sort of, I guess, protective feeling towards Sandy uh, when she starts playing detective. And I feel like Ellie's relationship to Sandy kind of has a weird arc because initially she is so drawn to her because Sandy is... So much that Ellie is not, you know, she she is an extrovert. She is she lights up a room. Uh, she is comfortable in social situations. All things we have seen Ellie struggling with. She's she's a popular girl. She's a cool girl. Whatever you know. So there's definitely, you know, if you want to put this in in high school friendship terms, you know, she's the she's the popular girl, and Ellie is the the, the new girl who is drawn to her. But you know, as Ellie's idea about Sandy shifts, and what she, you know, learns about Sandy's life or perceives about Sandy's life shifts, like I said, she becomes kind of like protective of her and maybe less admiring. And that goes into what we were talking about as far as the uh, sort of nostalgia themes of here you know she her eyes are open or the scales fall off her eyes however you want to put it in, in regards to sandy but she's had she still i think feels that connection because of she saw in sandy what she wanted to see in herself from the beginning and she can't really let go of that
1: so this is uh these are allusive films uh uh last night in soho and Persona, right? Keith
3: is persona, though. I think that's the thing. We, we talked about so many films that draw on persona. It's not exactly without precedent. I mean, I think there there are a lot of you know Bergman has has influences. I mean, Dreyer being a very very strong one. Uh, Scott knows all about Carl Dreyer. And
1: Andalu, you said uh, we talked about earlier,
3: right? Exactly. There's there's that as well. But but it is it's one of those things where it's kind of influenced so much. It's kind of tough to see. Where it came from, in some ways, uh, whereas was you know Edgar Wright is very much a a um, a filmmaker who who freely and openly and and to the point where it becomes part of the style, uh, it brings in his influence of the filmmakers he loves and the films he he loves uh, as well. So that it's kind of a, to me it's it's almost more of a point of contrast than something they have in common.
2: Edgar Wright I feel always talks about what films uh, influenced each of his films like I feel like that's kind of standard uh in his promotion uh, mm-hmm. cycle for, for every new film and he certainly did it uh, for this as well I think I think it was at IndieWire he talked about the like 20- for for IndieWire he actually did a, a list of 25 films right. that helped influence this film and explained
1: each yeah. one of them and
2: and none of them were persona though right yeah, is no, but
1: Persona so. is, is... Oh, number 25, number 25.
3: Oh, and, it was. Yeah, you know, but it is included on his... He did a. a uh, he also did a list of films that influenced it uh, for Criterion, which which I will talk about a little bit in our uh, uh, Your Next Picture Show segment, down, down the line. Uh, but that was personas included among those. Uh,
2: okay, okay. Well, I, I stand corrected, but... I feel um, good
3: about our choice to prayer these two movies.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. Yes. <laughs> I, obviously, it's right there. I, I wanted to bring it up in the context of a connection about style, because there was a uh, kind of a, a stylistic beat between the two films films um, that felt very purposeful, but also maybe a a little less than obvious, which is sort of the Aural slash visual cue leading you into a dream sequence. One of the coolest things I think in uh, Last Night in Soho visually is that light of the French restaurant outside mm, her her yeah. apartment. Um, uh-huh. That is, and obviously that gives us a very cool giallo-y palette. Uh, you know, but it also is along with the music, sort of her. You know, it's the cue uh, that you know enters her into this sort of dreamscape and. There's only a little bit of that in Persona, but it's such a pivot. It's at such a pivotal moment, which is the the mirror moment where Elizabeth maybe visits Alma's room in the middle of the night and they look at each other slash us in in a mirror. And immediately preceding that, there is a foghorn outside or we hear a foghorn and there the light of the film kind of changes. And there's just this very kind of specific drop into a new headspace, I guess, for the, for, for the film. And I, um, I would not be surprised. I, I didn't read uh, the, the persona blurb, obviously, uh, Wright wrote. Uh, so maybe he brought that up, but um, I liked that detail
1: for sure uh yeah i mean god yeah those that list of influences for right is so fun to get get through because of you you know the ones that i had seen i mean plenty of them i hadn't but uh, the ones i had seen you could see how they reflected both the Argento and the and the uh HG Cluzo Inferno are both <laughs> both seem to like they're referenced in this movie uh so that was kind of funny and uh you know again just being able to you know the Suspiria you see a lot of in the in in uh the film of Peeping Tom I think is a good example of a film that influenced Last Night in Soho that almost feels also relevant to Persona I mean obviously it came later than late did it come later than Persona Peeping Tom would have been earlier than Persona, wouldn't have been. Peeping Tom is earlier
3: than Persona, yeah.
1: I'll be damned, but yeah, because it's just about it's about it's that association, quite literal association of of film with with violence. I mean, with, with Peeping Tom, and me, of course, you have the camera being this quite literal assaultive object of being of a, of their of there being this. Uh, you know, blade on the stand itself, you know, initiative, you know, the camera being this this aggressive voyeuristic presence. And so uh, and, and I think that that um, both uh, Wright and uh, Bergman are, you know, so are, are kind of speaking in the language of film as as a is, uh, you know, a potentially, you know, violent and, and, and aggressive tool um that can that could can be can be used in one way or the other they don't necessarily use them for the exact same ends uh but but that association is there
0: i just think it's significant with the last night in soho that you know it's it's a movie about reaching back to the past and expecting some specific things there and finding something completely different there instead so it just seems appropriate you know that he would he would bring in so many different allusions to the past the indie wear list I thought was really interesting in part because you know there there are some very literal quotes in this movie uh, the re- the repulsion scene of the protagonist stumbling through a forest of arms grabbing at her comes to mind but a lot of the movies that he's he's quoting are essentially just you know here's something that I looked at for how people actually dressed in the 1960s you know here's a movie that's not great in and of itself, but is interesting because it was so low budget that they were just wearing their clothes instead of costumes. So we went back and looked at that to see like how the dresses should move and flow. Sometimes Quentin Tarantino in particular, you know, who's another just like infamous crate digger when it comes to his cinematic references, sometimes he feels just a little too much of a copycat to me in terms of Let's just do this thing that somebody else did, but with Edgar Wright, I always feel like things are are recontextualized in uh, in different and interesting ways. So, in our last conversation, when we we're talking about persona, using shots from Unshen uh, and I I asked Keith, "Well, is that the is that the only reference? Because it's really interesting." Uh, I went and looked it up, and those little uh, snippets that are you know look like uh, old. Silent movies um, with a guy running around being chased by skeletons. Actually, from an earlier Bergman film. He's just, uh, he's referencing himself. Yeah. He's
1: cannibalizing himself.
0: <laughs> but again.
1: But he made those were not, he did not, he was not part no, of the no, Silent Movie. No, no, era, no, like, uh, no. It's from film. a
0: 1949 movie that he did uh, called uh, Prison or uh the devil's a wanton depending on uh which translation you use that's about somebody making a film trying to create the best film in history i, I don't I haven't seen this movie so uh so i don't know but uh no. apparently uh. he he made those shots himself he's not drawing from the silent era he's drawing from himself like recreating the silent era which i just think is a, a fun little bit of illusion
1: M- mining from your own obscurities that seems like a good strategy <laughs> <laughs> Rather than just taking shots from summers from with Monica or something. Yeah, you know, if we want to talk about the many layers of allusion and in and, and theme and style in these these both these movies, we, we could be here all night and uh, or, or whenever it is you're listening to this podcast so we'll stop there uh last night and soho is currently in theaters persona is streaming on the criterion channel and on hbo max and it can be rented on apple tv and amazon we'll be right back with your next picture show Finally, it's time for your next picture show, where we recommend films or film related items that we think our listeners might enjoy. What have you got for us this week,
3: Keith? Well as I alluded to earlier uh, uh, Edgar Wright has a kind of a playlist up on Criterion with nice little introductions where he talks to uh, Alicia Malone uh, about about his uh, life and movie going and some of the movies that he Adventures and
1: Movie Adventures in Movie Going that, is that's that correct that's
3: mm-hmm. correct Adventures in Movie Going uh, and among the we it was a film we came very close to actually doing on the show which was um, Blood and Black Lace, because, you know, in, in the run up to this, and and it would be obvious even if, if he were talking about it, but Rice talked about Jallo being an influence, the the Italian uh, sort of thriller subgenre, uh, and he chose uh, this particular film by Maria Bavo, both because it is a good Jallo film, but also because it has a particular influence on last night and so that's called uh which is Blood and Black Lace it was released in 1964, uh just a year after The Girl Who Knew Too Much, which was Baba's first Jallow film and pretty much the first Jallo film. As as its name suggests, uh it's a Hitchcock-inspired uh film. Uh and I think with Blood and Black Lace, he kind of sort of started to push Jallo in more of the direction we know we had like these really lyric colors, a like semi nonsensical uh, plot at, at the, at the center of it, uh, a masked killer uh, just, you know, and, and sort of a um, more explicit uh, approach to sexuality, uh, somewhat ex- exploitative, but, but in a way that kind of You know, it's it's an influence on Last Night and So in the sense that it is an exploitative film that also understands that there's some sort of critique to be offered – uh, on exploitation, uh, at the same time. Uh, it's quite good. I, I think we would have had a good time talking about it. Uh, it doesn't give you as much to talk about his persona because I don't think any film gives you as much to talk about his persona. Uh, but it, it, uh, I would definitely recommend that for those curious about, uh, where Last Night in Soho came from, uh, where Jalo comes came from, or just kind of just want to check out a very, um, uh, lurid and exciting thriller.
1: I've not seen that film, Keith. I, I, I've the only Bava I've seen is Black Sunday.
3: Uh, I've seen a lot of Baba actually and I but I had not seen that one until I just watched it uh, because of this film and you know if you can't see this at uh, listening at home but there's a, a poster a Spanish poster for a reissue of planet of, of uh Baba's Planet of the vampires uh <laughs> behind me as I as I record this uh, which was a big influence on alien uh you know he's quite quite the influential director and uh, uh a lot of his stuff I mean you know we kind of point to we're talking about you know talking about Jallo we're talking about uh film that film is alien you don't really have the slasher film without his <laughs> 1971 film a bay of blood also known by the much cooler name twitch of the death nerve um so yeah <laughs> if, if you're curious about Baba uh it's it's really worth it's really uh, fun stuff to dig into Genevieve how about you
2: well, with uh, apologies once again to Scott, I am going to recommend not a movie, but it is so close to a movie uh, <laughs> in 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 multiple ways. Uh, not to mention uh, c- uh, connected to one of our films here. Uh, so I feel good about recommending uh, scenes from a marriage 2021. This is the uh, newish HBO adaptation of Ingmar Bergman's 1973 miniseries, also called Scenes from a Marriage, which also starred Liv Oldman. So you know it. Do you approve, Scott? Can I uh, bring bring this this TV show into our, our film recommendations? I think so. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Okay,
3: it's good. Fi- yeah. it's, fi- it's a film-related item.
2: <laughs> it is a film-related item, so yes. And
3: the original um, was both film and TV that's show. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, this uh, this version, I feel, is very solidly a TV show. Um, it stars Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain as the uh, couple at the center of the, the titular marriage, which uh, sort of... Famous, I don't think it's a spoiler. Uh, if you have any familiarity with the original, uh, sort of famously uh, d- d- devolves. Um, and what? I, I think, <laughs> yes, um, I, I admit that I uh, have been going through this five episode series very, very slowly. It premiered back in. September just uh, weeks before I uh, got married, so it did not seem like the most uh, thematically appropriate watch (laughs) Uh, for for, for various reasons. But uh, you know, I've I've, I've gotten gotten over that, and it definitely was one that I I knew I needed to catch up on for this year. And I'm glad I did. It is definitely you know what you might call a difficult watch. These are you know not easily likable characters and their relationship is a uh, thorny one in in several respects uh this version notably kind of flips the power dynamic of the husband and wife uh jessica chastain plays a sort of high-powered tech uh ceo type and oscar isaac's uh, character is a professor who has more of a laid-back stay-at-home dad kind of kind of vibe um, and that informs uh, their their relationship in in ways that uh, are markedly different from from the original. There's also sort of a um, wraparound conceit involving like pandemic filming that is like kind of weird, and I I'm not sure it works, but it does feel kind of reminiscent of the sort of um, self reflexive stuff uh, that we saw uh, that we talked about with Persona. Um, but really, I think. The appeal here is 100%. Uh, Isaac and Chastain, who are both very good performers, who have very good chemistry together. They have played uh, a couple before in a, a most violent year. Their friends going back like 20 years. There, they just have a whole lot of history and chemistry and and talent to to draw on here. And. They convey intimacy in a really remarkable way. So, if those are performers you like, you know, I think that's reason enough to see this. But with the caveat that, like, it is not necessarily an an easy watch or a fun watch, or uh, definitely not a romantic watch. Um, but it is a it is a very well done, well executed uh, series. So, I would recommend checking out scenes from a marriage.
1: <laughs> see, I'm not I'm not thinking about about other like you know films that you might recommend (laughs) at certain points in your life i'm just like well, i'm gonna recommend kramer versus kramer and their story and (laughs) and we're just gonna be very concerned about how things are going uh but (laughs) anyway but i I do want to sue this it's one of those things where it's like yeah i I, i'll 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 totally catch up with that i promise (laughs) Who knows?
2: you know just gives you stuff to look out for stuff to watch out for as a newlywed that's all uh (laughs) so scott what about you
1: uh, yeah, I would like to recommend the new Pablo Lorraine film, Spencer, starring uh, Kristen Stewart, which has really kind of grown on me since I saw it and wrote about it. It's one of those things. It's one of the things about kind of getting back into reviewing a lot of major films is like is is just remembering how much the process of writing about a film just it just clarifies your thought, thoughts on it, and and I, and I felt a lot more warmly to the the, the film writing about it than I necessarily did right off the bat watching it but in any case um this is very much a companion piece to jackie his film about jackie kennedy you know also this is about princess diana it like jackie takes place over a very small time period this this film is just um you know christmas weekend um 1991 it's got a lot of stylistic signatures that are similar kind of a, you know it's got a very spare instrumental score this is by johnny greenwood the last one was mika levi there is you know the framing of the film there's a lot of like long shots a lot of, a lot of use of telephoto lens there's just a lot of similarities between the two films and of course the films are also about very public women and in, in fashion icons i suppose who, who who are under a tremendous amount of scrutiny and pressure and, and have to wriggle their way free from that or try to figure out how to how to deal with that pressure and so you know where we catch diana as spencer opens is her being in a very very bad place in her marriage and her relationship with the royal family and feeling a little bit rebellious in a way that deepens a lot of those tensions you know so she she's arriving at this you know at this estate uh, for christmas and there's a lot of these traditions that she's having to follow she has to weigh herself which is something they're supposed to do for a bit of fun because at the end of the weekend you'll have eaten a lot of food and so you'll weigh more fun 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 british stuff like that and uh you know she's supposed to wear you know a a certain dress Uh, she's got all of her dresses picked out for for her for each day of the week and and uh not not each day of the week but each 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 meal that she goes to each occasion that she goes to she has a different different outfit picked out for her and and uh there's no part of her her day uh, that is, that isn't planned, but meanwhile, she's, she's extremely unhappy in her marriage. She has, is clearly full of re- regret for the life that she's taken on. And, and is, uh, it, you know, in the, the homes, the, the estate's location near her actual birthplace is causing her a certain amount of distress and regret as well. And, and, um, you know, it's, a, it's a film that just kind of gets into these, Hidden tensions and you know high anxiety of, of this woman, kind of a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. To to quote the the El uh, uh, title, and uh it's all very beautifully wrought, and, I, and, and it has this central performance by Kristen Stewart that is incredible. Like it's, it's a it's something where you think like, okay, you've got an American actress and she's going to play Princess Diana, and she's Kristen Stewart, who is who was so. You don't expect her to disappear into a role like that, but she does so instantly. It's stunning how 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 thoroughly she is uh, immersed in this character, and you know. And, and then you get so many great performances around her, including from uh, a couple of really great performances by Mike Lee favorites like Sally Hawkins and, and by Timothy Spall as well. Timothy Spall plays, you know, a character who kind of is, you know, is sort of there to kind of keep things moving along but 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 his interactions with her are very much from a position of someone representing the royals and in and a lot of the things that he's suggesting that she do at certain moments is just laced with a, you know a very subtle hostility that we feel and she feels very you know intensely so uh, you know very impressive film very much a companion piece with jackie if you like jackie then i certainly would recommend seeing if you didn't like jackie then maybe maybe no. i would give it a, give it a miss but uh spencer it's out now in a limited way maybe it will find its way to you but it's it's worth seeing for sure
3: without spoiling anything do things work out for her
1: wow that's a dark that's a dark question <laughs> i'm uh, yeah, sorry um, it, it, it's it's uh it's a few
3: years yet that, you know it okay. takes a little while right. before
1: things really really don't work out but but um it, this is not a great time not a great 91 10 years they're 10 years into the marriage and uh she going. she loves her kids you know and they love her yeah. back yeah. And, and that's a very powerful part of the film so uh, tasha how about you
0: so someone sent me a trailer and uh said check this film out and i started watching the trailer and thought to myself okay That's interesting. There's clearly a lost animated movie from uh, roughly 1982 that I've never seen before. Uh, It's called The Spine of Night, and it is, in fact, a movie made in 2021. Although if you watch it or really if you you watch any clip of it, watch the trailer, you will think that you're watching something from the era of uh, like the height of Ralph Bakshi and uh, heavy metal. The Spine of Night is just a a hardcore throwback movie to an era of not just um, rotoscoping, which uh, it it has that kind of uh, like loose fluid movement of uh, cell painting over uh, actual human bodies, but just a a specific kind of adult animated filmmaking. Uh, One of the main characters is a, a witch woman from the wilds who runs around pretty much stark naked through the whole movie. And she is not the typical kind of body that you normally see uh, as somebody who somebody decided to leave naked for the whole movie in an exploitation flick. There's just a lot of interesting choices on display in this movie. Uh, And a lot of interesting voices, including Lucy Lawless and Patton Oswalt, uh, Richard E. Grant, Betty Gabriel, (laughs) Larry Fessenden as the prophet of doom. This is definitely the kind of movie that has characters named the prophet of doom and Gal Sur and the Guardian. Uh, It's it's a real, real old like dime paper novel, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard slash Michael Moorcock kind of thing. It stretches on for literal centuries. Uh, anybody who's seen heavy metal, it's it's not an anthology like heavy metal, but it does kind of have that sense of there's cosmic magical power, and uh, it it is enduring, and it confers a kind of horrible immortality, and death does not mean anything in this sword and sorcery world. So it's it's pretty heady, uh, which is to say it's a head film, which is to say it feels like it was made for people who love heavy metal music and various kinds of mood alterating substances. Uh, But I, I found it pretty fascinating as an artifact, just the idea that people would want to make a movie that looks like Posters that uh, a certain kind of metalhead from the 1980s would have had on their their walls uh, in this day and age. It's definitely not a perfect movie. It has all of the flaws of a Ralph Bakshi movie uh, of the era or heavy metal, except for the, the fact where it, it doesn't have a character uh, spend like 20 minutes taking a bath and thus miss out on uh, protecting the people that she's been called to to protect in combat. Uh, if anything, it, it mocks that mentality a little. It, it was definitely self-aware, aware of both its, its audience and its era. But the filmmakers aren't mocking that era either. There's a... a a real burning sincerity to this movie, like uh, a real thorough and non-sarcastic love, uh, a particular kind of dark epic fantasy and uh, a particular kind of mentality. And it's just, it's a fascinating movie. Um, It's available on streaming now. You can rent it in all of the usual digital places and uh, if the fact that there's only one heavy metal in the world was not enough for you up until now, if rock and rule did not quite scratch the itch for another movie in that vein, the spine of night, it's sitting there waiting for you.
1: Wow. Yeah, that seems like uh, a pretty I, I have I had seen a lot of back and forth about that one you know, because of Patton's involvement in it. But uh, the look, it does. It definitely looks like a movie out of time. Definitely does not look like a movie from 2021, which to me sounds kind of great. Uh, and probably appropriate to this, uh, uh, episode in which we talk about a film that deals with nostalgia, but that is it for this edition of the next picture show. Our next pairing is November 23rd and 30th. Uh,
3: Keith, what do we have on tap? In the first half of our next pairing, we'll be discussing Passing, the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall, starring Ruth Nega and Tess Thompson, an adaptation of a Harlem Renaissance novelist Nella Larson's 1929 novel The Same Name. It's the story of two childhood friends who re- reunite in adulthood after one has married a racist white man unaware of her past. Looking around for a possible pairing, we were inspired by RogerEbert.com critic Odie Henderson's review, liking it to Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life. So we're bringing in both that movie and Henderson himself for the discussion
1: in the meantime we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of persona last night in Soho and anything else film related you'd like to talk about we want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net finally before closing out this week's episode where can we find everyone these days uh, Genevieve Kosky
2: I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me occasionally on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha?
0: I have an exciting new title. I am the film and streaming editor mm. at Polygon.com. We have hired a TV editor who's going to uh, take some of the, the load off my back and my mind. I'm looking forward to this.
2: The, the idea uh, of separating streaming and TV is just like blowing my mind right now. That's- <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'll, I'll tell you where it's already come up is uh, the new Aardman animation is gonna be on Netflix later this month, uh, the month of November. It's called Robin Robin. They're presenting it as a a special to which I ask, uh, does it make sense to call things a special anymore when it's not something that is is interrupting the normal flow of television for a a one off uh, one night event and this thing being dropped onto streaming? Uh, it's not a movie. It's not TV. What is it? Oh, we don't know. It's streaming. I think we're going to have a lot more stuff uh, in that vein. Just the, the sort of sense of Netflix keeps bragging about how its TV doesn't need to be any particular length. Its episodes don't have to be cut to any standard. We tell the story however long it takes to tell the story. So as much as we snipe at each other here about uh, TV versus film and which is mm-hmm. better, I'm looking at you, Scott. Uh, there, film, film, film. There are certain things that <laughs> I don't know. It's just streaming. Yeah, forget about it, Jake. It's just streaming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> do you have a? Do you? Uh, can people find you on Twitter? Uh, a People
0: can find me on Twitter. But uh, the the point I was going to make before uh, my my fancy flashy new title got called out was that uh, having Zosha Milman come in as our TV editor has given me more time to write. So you can actually find me writing about film again at Polygon.com, including uh, interviewing Edgar Wright multiple times about Last Night in Soho. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith, what about you?
3: Uh, I'm a freelance writer. I write for a, a bunch of different places like GQ and Vulture and The Ringer. Uh, you can follow my writing for those organizations for my Twitter uh, account uh, on twitter.com which is kfips 3000 and with, with Scott Tobias. Uh, I'm a proud co-author of a, uh, a newsletter called The Reveal. You can find it at thereveal.substack.com if you like to hear Scott and me weigh in on the movies of the day and the movies of yesteryear and, and whatever. Uh, that's it's it's a pretty good source for that kind of thing, right? Right, Scott? Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs>
1: I'm not telling you to smash the subscribe button. Or anything. <laughs> maybe you got, maybe no, just maybe no, no, just, maybe no, you just sign up it. for the free email s- first and just see <laughs> w- see if it's the type of content you want to support, and then smash it. Yeah, um, when, when, my-
3: when you decide to, to to commit to the to a paid subscription, you got to smash it.
1: Yeah, as long, you long have as my to. beloved smash
3: isn't here somewhere i'm good
0: absolutely
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah yeah uh, so obviously the reveal is taking quite a uh, quite a bit of my energy and passion these days but I, i'm also doing quite a bit of writing still for the new york times for vulture and for guardian uh, among other uh, outlets um you can find me on twitter at at scott underscore tobias you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. And please also consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your favorite movie podcast, The Next Picture Show. <laughs> uh, thanks to Dan the Baked Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.
2: If you should find you miss a sweet and tender love we used to share.